Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Save Strength Podcast. Today I am interviewing the beautiful Caitlin Spencer. She has such an amazing story to tell. She wears so many hats, and I cannot wait for you all to hear her wisdom and to hear her story. I hope you enjoy. So we're going. <laughs> Who are you, Kate? Please uh, tell me about yourself. Sure. Uh, so my name is Caitlin. Um, born not in Hong Kong, but basically raised here, so it's basically home. Um, in terms of job, uh, wear many hats. Um, so during the day, I'm a personal trainer at Calibre Studios. Um, very small boutique studio. Uh, great team, though. I'm going to plug that. Great team at yeah. Calibre Studios. Um, and in the evenings, or at the time that I'm not a PT, I actually co-founded a climate change slash renewable energy slash green charity uh, with my husband and one of my good friends. Um, so I'm currently the CEO of that, although that hat kind of gets passed around based on who has the most spare time and at the time at the moment that's me so i am the current ceo uh longest standing ceo but current ceo of that uh yeah co-founded it about four years ago what are we 2021 yeah about four years ago now um yeah so that's what i that's what i do also uh new mum so there's a there's i don't think i don't count that as a job but it takes up a lot of time these days so i'll throw that out there too um so yeah that's kind of me in a nutshell where should we start? Shall we start with the PT and everything like that? Yeah, sure. Awesome. So how did you get into that? Um, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, when I was quite young, uh, I remember parents asked me what I wanted to do for as a job. Like, what do you want to be when you're older? Uh, and I said, a PE teacher. Um, and then that kind of not fizzled and went away, but that, I kind of just benched that. And at some point went, uh, actually, I really want to be like I found diagnostics and medicine really interesting so I was like actually that like I was really interested in that when I was about 16 17 I think all of a sudden science just made sense at school I went through my whole life with math and science not making any sense and I turned 16 all of a sudden it was oh yeah no I get it um so I actually applied to universities across the board uh for uh anything science related sometimes it was kinesiology sometimes it was biochemistry uh once or twice it was quite explicitly pre-med um, and I did that at uni for the first two years um, and then found my absolute hatred for physical chemistry um, and realized that I was not capable of standing and doing labs for hours on end. Uh, and I took a look at the course layout for the next two years and went, no, I don't think I'm not cut out for this. It was giving me so much anxiety. <laughs> um, but what I found super interesting were my uh, nutrition courses. Um, so I switched my major from biochemistry into uh, nutritional science and human biology. Um, graduated there and still wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do. Um, and uh, But I've always been a very active, yeah. played loads of sports growing up in Hong Kong. Um, so I kind of just naturally just went towards uh, PT. Um, and I also, I mean, doing the nutrition as well was also huge. Uh, I really found, I found lots of aspects of my nutrition interesting, but I found basically like the impact that, that has on performance. Um, but also like I, playing quite physical sports, you get injured a lot. So I found like the physiotherapy yeah. aspect of PT work quite interesting as well. Um, and I then kind of spun it in my head as if you're a doctor, you help people after they're already sick. Um, whereas if I'm a PT and if you're a good PT, you can almost help people prevent themselves from getting injured. So not quite a sickness, but injury and ailments of that sort. Um, and it's just so happened that a lot of my client base are either in a prehab or rehab state, um, or pre postnatal mums. Um, so I kind of, yeah. And I've just kind of, 
it kind of just naturally evolved from medicine into PT. Uh, not that PT is necessarily easily easier, but uh, uh, yeah, I just kind of saw it as kind of doing the same thing, but from the other side, not yeah. helping people after already sick, but helping them not get sick. No, I, I love guess. that. And I love so. that little thing about the science and math not making sense and then it just clicking. I relate to yeah. that a lot. And it's really funny, actually, because in my mind, I thought I was always quite good at science. Mm. And then a few years ago, my parents moved uh, and I was helping them move and I found my report cards. And the report cards up until I was like 16 years old. When I was 16, the report cards were essentially, wow, she did so well in math and science. And then it turned into, oh, actually, she's quite good in math and science. <laughs> but before that, it was like, maybe she should consider a degree in like history or do something written. Whereas when I was at university, if there was no way I was going to do a written like essay-based course. I mean, it was just not going to happen. No. I'm much better at memorizing information reciting it and regurgitating it and still somewhat able to retain it um, but the whole read all of these then write a 4,000 yeah. that was not going to happen no that was the same so. for me I had I was going to be an English teacher oh, yeah. and I always thought I was really stupid because mom loves to tell this story that we had like a placement <laughs> exam for this school and yeah. one of her friend's kids who's like super, super clever came out and was like, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I came out and I was like, yes, rocked it. Nailed and it. mom was like, no, sweetie, <laughs> you, no, you did really it. Didn't. I don't think so. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. So, but I moved past that eventually. So yeah, I love... I yeah. love the science side of things as well. I think yeah. that's what intrigues me about PT. Yeah. So what is your sporting background? Um, oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I think I did what all kids do where uh, at some point, and I feel like at some point in everybody's life, everybody's played football or soccer. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a pretty short-lived career of mine. Um, I want to say, I want to I give it a few months when I was like six. And then I went back to it for about a year or so when I was 17 or 18. Um, but my mum was a tennis player. My mum was also a gymnast. So I vaguely remember, my parents are probably at some point going to listen to this and be like, no, you're wrong. But I vaguely remember at some point in my life, gymnastics was involved. I want, I want to say it was like one or two classes. Yeah. And then I kind of found my own with tennis. And I found that that was the first sport where I was like, oh, I can actually do this. Um, so I played a lot of tennis, um, school then recruited me to play weird other things like squash, mm. played netball for a while at school. Um, and then when I was 11 years old, my best friend decided that she wanted to play rugby and she was like, I want to play rugby. And I kind of went, oh, well, I was playing a lot of tennis at the time. I was playing six or seven hours a week. That was my sport. I felt like I was good at it. So I went, oh, okay, like go have fun. And then she said, no, no, no. Like I really want to play, but I don't want to play by myself. Mm. So I was like, okay, well, you know, you make, like other people. <laughs> and then, so she eventually just wrote me into playing. Mm. Um, and yeah, I fell in love with it. So for the longest time, it was just uh, rugby and tennis. Um, by the time I graduated from secondary school, I think I was on, like, I was on the football team. I was on the squash team. I was on the tennis team. I was on the cross country team. I was on the rugby team. Uh, I was playing league tennis in Hong Kong. I was playing like national rugby for Hong Kong, uh, like age grade level. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, it was tennis and rugby that kind of took over. Um, actually, when I applied to universities, I applied to universities that only had rugby programs or tennis programs. And I remember when I got, I eventually went to University of Toronto. Um, and when I was like applying to be a varsity athlete, I remember I hesitated for a minute and I was like, oh, do I do I go for tennis or do I go for rugby? Um, Did you have to pick one? 
Yeah, just um, because there was no way that I was going to be able to do a yeah. science degree. In my mind, I was still doing medicine. So yeah, I was like, okay. there's no way I'm going to do medicine, <laughs> tennis, and rugby. Like, tennis and rugby and you, at university were both uh, sports that happened at the same time of year. Oh, okay. So I was like, no, there's no way I'm going to do both. Which one do I go for? And then I thought, okay, I'm moving to a city that I've never been to before. Moving, like, to a different country. Rugby will give me 28 friends. Like, they were not even friends. Like, if you're on a rugby pitch, it's very much, it's very cliched, but, like, that's 28 family members from the get-go. If I go play tennis, that's a very solo sport. Um, so I opted for rugby um, and stuck through it when I was actually, and then when I was at uni in the off-season for rugby, I actually did a bit of uh, kickboxing. Muay Thai. Oh, really? So yeah. for a while, I was the most, like, stress-free human <laughs> in the world. Like, go out and hit a few tackle bags yeah. in the off season but also do a bit of muay thai i was like so stress-free very zen yeah. uh so yeah i did that at uni and then i mean both my parents are canadian i am canadian so a big skier mm-hmm. um in the summers i used to be a kayak instructor in vancouver uh slash tour guide i did a bit of trail bunch- yeah, i did a bunch of everything that then i went to like on. trail biking mountain biking isn't that um, scary yes yeah I um, was not a good mountain biker because I was too scared of falling. So trail biking I thought was okay with. And then I went out with good family friends of ours up to Whistler. um, And he's a solid mountain biker. And mountain biking at Whistler is like next level mountain biking. And I went out with him once. And I remember being so scared and just, I just kept thinking, just let your natural instincts take over. Just do it. Just, just let your, just, just let you do you. And I was terrified. My natural instincts would be to scream and to stop and break at every bump. No, so I finished, I did that one. I can say that I have mountain biked at Whistler. (laughs) I I know the run that I did. I know the run that I did. I can name it. And then I have since gone, okay, no, I'm not. No, that's that's it. That's it. Road biking, road biking, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I've kind of done it all, really. That is. That's full on. And you kind of glossed over it a little bit, but you said you were very anxious to make that switch from like medicine to like a more nutrition kind of side of things. Yeah. What was that time in your life like, like making that decision? Um, Very stressful, actually. And that was completely self-imposed stress as well. I remember I built it up to be this huge thing in my head that, oh my God, like I've told so many people that I want to be a doctor. Like that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go do medicine. I'm going to go do medicine. And I don't know, I, I guess I guess in my mind it was almost a step down, the fact that I I was going to admit publicly that, oh, actually, not even not even that it would be that public, but yeah. <laughs> admit that I was not cut out for it. Mm. And in my mind is that, like in my mind that was the first time where I'd been confronted with a decision like that, that in my mind would kind of be like a, like a failure of, yeah. oh, I didn't make it, or I didn't do it, I wasn't good enough to do it. Um, and I remember it was a very stressful, very tearful, like, conversation with my parents. And my parents were like, it's totally okay. Yeah. Like, we're, like, and I will say, I mean, they've, it's, I don't have parents that would put pressure on me like that <laughs> at all. They're very chilled out people. So when I told them, and I was like, I built it up so much in my head. And they were just like, it's okay. <laughs> totally fine. Like, we yeah. never, like... We, like it's totally fine like don't yeah. it's you're not you're not letting us down you're not letting anyone down it's it's fine you're switching and that's perfectly valid and that's very normal um and don't yeah don't freak out about it yeah um it's crazy that kind of anxiety that we can impose yeah. on ourselves like, and it was, i don't even know where it came yeah. from but in my mind i was like oh my gosh this is the yeah. worst thing that's ever well i suppose happen. if you've kind of built up 
like part of your identity at least around being like the yeah, science kid well, from I a think, certain age but <laughs> and I think yeah and I think it was also just the people that I was around at uni as well all of them were going to go into research they were going to go into yeah. science and a lot of them since have done that mm. um whereas I kind of went oh no I don't I don't I, I can't do it <laughs> I can't I can't do this it's so cool <laughs> so yeah. the research side of things I'm like I don't know. Uh, there were things where I was like, oh, it'd be cool to research that. I don't remember now, but I was like, at the time, I remember thinking, oh, it'd be cool to research that. Maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe I'll go to grad school and I'll research <laughs> yeah. this very small thing that at the time feels like a big deal, but now that I can't even think about what it was that I was potentially going to research. But, and that's, yeah. yeah, to step away from that and go, actually, no. Um, yeah, it was a huge, yeah. it was quite a pivotal moment in my life. Okay. Um, I'm sure your younger self would be thanking you now, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm hoping life is good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> life is much better. <laughs> well, I wouldn't know, but I, I think my life is much better now than what it would have been. Much less stress, much less, much less stress. Chemistry, much less stress. Uh, yeah. yeah, much more time with family, much more yeah. time for myself, much more time for hobbies and a bit of life as well. Yeah, exactly. um, and yeah, I think just much, much less stress for yeah. sure. So. That being said, what is some of the best and the worst things about what you do right now? Ooh, uh, the best ones are easy. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of cool people. Like you meet yeah. super interesting people. Um, every day is very different to the day before. There are never there is never a time where you're like, oh, I know exactly how this is go- how this day is going to go. Um, it's even during the day. Well, you'll get curveballs thrown at you, um, and I like that. I like being, I like being in a state where it can, like things can change in the next hour. Yeah. Um, and I find PT work is a lot of the time it's a bit like problem solving as well, where a client comes in, they present with this, this, and this, and it's a case of, okay, how do I, like, how do I fix that? Mm-hmm. Or how do I help make that better? Um, and I mean, in terms of the worst side of things, uh, not too, I mean, I'm lucky in the environment I'm in. Um, there's not too many. I have been in more negative gym environments uh, that was just not conducive to positive mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took myself out of there pretty quickly. Um, so I suppose that's, I mean, it can be quite a, uh, it can be quite an oppressive, like macho environment to be in sometimes. Um, and yeah, luckily I I was, I was in a fortunate enough position where I could take myself away from that and, and make a change. Um, so I suppose that was a negative aspect. Um, but apart from that, I mean, every now and then you get a client who you'd hope would come in with high energy to lift you up during the day and they come in and they're like, actually my day wasn't that great. And you kind of like have this sinking feeling of, okay, now it's just on me to lift the energy in here. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't call that a bad aspect. It's just, it's just something, again, it's just something that has to yeah. happen. That happens sometimes. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's one of the changes you adapt yeah, to. Um, do you want to talk about a little bit more about the macho side of things uh, or is it too do. negative? We can, can say happy. Can if you I can do. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I worked in, I've worked in two gyms that are very, uh, yeah, quite, quite male dominated and quite like beefy male dominated, um, and uh yeah it's just not not a very pleasant environment to be in um and it can it it kind of attracts clients that i wasn't interested in having either um and i remember when i first started out as a pt in hong kong um i was a group class instructor as well as a pt i also taught group class and one of the well, I would say one of the earlier classes that I took, not necessarily like the first or second one, but one of the earlier ones I took, um, a guy came in, new client, 
came in to take the class. I came in to participate in the class, and um, I went over to reception to greet him, showed him where the changing rooms were. So he went off and get, got himself changed. And the receptionist at the time said, "Just so you know, um, he's expressed concern that the class is being taught by a female." And I went, "What?" And she said, "Yeah, he's not like he's concerned that the, a strength class is taught by a female." And so I went, "Okay." Uh, and I remember at that moment kind of shrinking and I'd never been confronted with that in my entire life like that, that was well maybe I have but that was the first time that I'd consciously gone somebody is judging me without even knowing me based on my gender right. like that was one like not okay and two I just remember thinking I've never felt so small yeah. and then thought that I've got two options here either I let that win or I do the exact opposite and I show him like my gender does not ha- does not play any role in this whatsoever um and i'm very lucky i had a very lovely and very understanding gym manager essentially what i did in the class was he came in i'd asked him any health concerns any injuries i should be aware of all of that usual stuff okay uh he's come 15 minutes early which is good so i can show him the exercises we're doing and he was quite standoffish about it and quite like yeah 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 no i know i go to the gym i go to the gym um and just being quite aggressive in that sense uh, and I just kind of went, okay, fine, like, fine, I'm not going to fight you on this. Okay, so the class starts, uh, and he went to pick up a weight, and I essentially told him, and I was like, no, this is your first class, I'm not confident, because I don't know how your body moves, I'm not confident with giving you such a heavy weight, I need a form check first. So for at least the first round, no weight, please, just so I can see how your body moves before I start to load you. Um, and I just made him do everything with painstaking form, slowed everything right down. And you can kind of tell what a client's weakness is going to be quite quickly. And it was very obvious that he was going to struggle with anything cardio intensive. And I knew if I slowed it down, if I made him pay attention to a lot of form, his heart rate was going to shoot up and he was going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, I can now quite happily <laughs> say uh, we got through the first round um, and he took himself off to the bathroom to be sick. Uh, he did not come back and finish the class. Um, after the class was over, in my head, I was like, yeah, I've done it. <laughs> and after the class was over, the gym manager said, oh, when you've got a minute, can I see you? And I went, oh, no. <laughs> like, from a business point of view, this was a new client that had come in. He was potentially going to be like a paying returning client to come do gym class. And in my mind, I was like, oh, here we go. Gym manager pulls me in and uh, he sat me down. And he was like, oh, so you had a new client come in today. And I said, yes. And I was about to start with, and this is what he told the, 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 the and just come out super yeah, defensive. Yeah. And he said, no, I just want to say for people that come in, that's exactly like, that's exactly the attitude that you need to adopt. And he said, wow. unfortunately, that is something you will be faced with. Um, and he said, if he doesn't come back, that's fine. We don't want him, was yeah. essentially the response of... I think the gym manager took it quite personally as well, right? Don't don't question who we've hired yeah. here. We've hired them for a reason. Um, don't come in with an attitude, essentially. Um, the guy actually did end up coming back. Oh, did um, he? Which, to which your classes? I, to my classes, <laughs> yes. which I kind of took as a mini win. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was sad that I had to gain his respect. It should have been should have been it shouldn't have been something I had to fight for. Um, but I just remember thinking that was a moment that was I'm glad it happened when it happened in my PT career and the yeah. fact that it was quite early on um, because that really I mean it set the tone for the rest of my PT experience. Not that I'm yeah. 
that much of a hard ass <laughs> to all my clients necessarily. But um, yeah, I mean, I was quite, I was quite proud of that moment. Yeah, um, absolutely. I would be yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> I had a moment like that. Callum and I were teaching a class. I was like the lead instructor. Yeah. I'll tell you more about it afterwards. <laughs> <I don't> wanna... <laughs> but we were teaching a class. Everyone was having fun. And there was this one guy who wasn't like participating in any of the class or anything like that. And yeah. I was like, okay, maybe he's injured or something, but how good that he came down and like still partook in it. Yeah. And then at the end of the class, he said to Callum, he like, didn't even look me in the eye. He was like, why is she teaching your class and stuff oh like that? Gosh. She was like, but you're like a girl, like you can't teach. Yeah. And I was like, I was, Excuse me. I wish I had been defensive or something like that, but I feel like when it happens in the moment, you're just like, like you said, that shrinking yeah. kind of feeling. And it, you're was, like, it was a shrink. And I think actually, I probably, I don't think I would have reacted the way that I did in that stand up and yeah. fight back. I don't think it would have, I, I mean, I don't know whether I would have had that approach had we not had the two or three minutes where he'd walked away to go get changed. Yeah. And I kind of had those two or three minutes to shrink and mm. then let myself yeah. come out of that and stand up. Yeah, um, exactly. So I, yeah, I don't know what would have happened if he had just said, "No, actually, I don't need to change. Let's go." Um, I don't, I don't know how I would have reacted to that, yeah. just because I wouldn't have had time to process it. Um, so yeah, no, I'm glad it, I'm glad it happened the way it did. Yeah, absolutely. Like when it did. So. Did you ever feel pressure to cave into that kind of macho headspace? Or uh, no, no. I mean, like it was kind of. It was. They tried. I mean, to, yeah. to the gym's credit, they tried. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of went. Cool. No. Thanks okay yeah. that's I mean you do you that's 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 not me so yeah. but okay it and kind then, of highlights the importance of finding your people as well yeah oh for sure do you want to share yeah, a little bit yeah. more about Calibrate because I know you're obviously very passionate about them oh tell great, me about the oh, team it's a great tell team. me about everybody it's a great team um so uh, we have a lot of fun first and foremost I will say I am surrounded by phenomenal quality PTs yeah. I mean I mean not even saying that they don't even know I'm doing this podcast (laughs) (laughs) not saying that because I was told to um I am surrounded by quality PTs and we are constantly learning from each other um without even without even really overtly doing that um so yeah we're a very small boutique studio uh right in the heart of Lang Kwai Fong which makes for some very interesting early mornings (laughs) on Fridays and Saturdays of course Um, and most recently when uh the Euro finals when Mm -hmm. I went into work on Monday morning there were some pretty interesting characters still roaming the grounds um but uh yeah enough about that uh the studio itself I mean very small boutique studio um we've kind of we've kind of kind of uh we kind of have a reputation in Hong Kong of being like the mobility and um, like, yeah, the mobility experts, I would say, um, which is true and also isn't. Um, there are some trainers at Calibrate that have phenomenal mobility and have phenomenal ability to teach it, to instruct it, to improve people's mobility and flexibility and therefore strength. Um, but there are also PTs at Calibrate that do athlete development. We've got a lot of netball players that come in, um, oh, a few nice. rugby players that come in, and it's purely athlete development. Mm. Um, yeah, one of our trainers, Mitch, really knows, um, I mean, he really, really knows this stuff, and he's uh, he's quite sought after in that regard. Um, so Steph, who founded Calibrate, is the mobility expert. Most people in Hong Kong know her for netball, they know her for rugby. Um, she was raised here um so she's quite not necessarily a household name but a lot of people know of her know know what her training style is so people that kind of come through the door um are more often than not prehab rehab clients um so i in terms of me specifically i work quite closely with a lot of my clients physiotherapists or with their doctors um just to provide a better service and if a client comes in and tells me i'm seeing this physio for this problem my 
first question is, okay, who's the physio? Can you put me in touch? Sometimes it's a case of it's a physio I already know. Okay, great. I'll just pop them a message. Sometimes it's not. Okay, pop them an email or give give me their email or their phone number, whatever they're more comfortable with, just so I can understand the pathology of your injury a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I might understand the science behind it, I am not a physiotherapist and I'll say that. I do have to, I find I have to say that quite often. Um, We're none of us at Calibrate are physiotherapists. We kind of have that image um and you've got we, that thinking yeah cap we've on, got right? that thinking cap yeah. yeah we didn't mean to have that image but it's more just a case of we all kind of operate in the same way of your body is designed to move a certain way and if it's not working the way it's supposed to work then giving a weight yeah. might be at your detriment so let's work on mobility let's work on flexibility let's work on your range of motion let's work on your inhibitions let's improve them and then let's do strength training and i think that's the bit that people like the outside world in hong kong doesn't appreciate it's yes a lot of what we project is the mobility and flexibility but it's equally okay now we've done that we need to do strength training too Um, and sometimes it's trying to get clients into that headspace too because I think they kind of see us and we like the fact that we bridge that gap between physiotherapy and going back Mm. into a sport full-time or going back into a gym full-time we like that we bridge that gap but it is an understanding that if you want to get back into your sport if you want to get back into the gym you need to pick up a weight like I can't just give you your own body weight at some point a weight needs to be introduced and we just do it in a very safe way um there's a saying at Calibrate where you have to earn yourself under the bar so you don't come in and you don't get to just pick up a barbell because you've told me you know how to back squat yeah (laughs) you need to prove to me that you can move your body the way that it's designed to move before I can give you a bar and put let you put it on um so yeah I mean it's we're a very small team we're a very small studio Mm. um and I think I mean we really like that um we have a lot of fun um sometimes i find i leave the day and go like i don't understand how anyone at calibrate gets work done <laughs> like I, I don't understand like there's sometimes where a client's just sitting there just staring at us because somebody's done something in the corner and everybody's laughing and the entire studio is just staring like watching somebody and everybody's laughing and i'm kind of thinking it is great that we have built this environment yeah. where a client's first response isn't um hello excuse me we're working here but it's yeah. actually like all clients know all the trainers. A lot of the clients know the other clients now because it's a small space. Yeah. Um, so we've really built what we like to call a family. Yeah, um, it is. It's a little community. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great space to be in. What would be your approach to training then? So you spoke a lot about earning yourself under the bar and kind yeah. of like building up slowly. Is that would that be how you'd like describe your philosophy? Yeah. So I mean, in terms of how I run sessions, uh, most of us run sessions the same way actually, where we always start with mobility. Um, there's an assessment session as your first session in the gym, anyways, um, and in that session we have a chat about like goals why are you here why like how did you hear about calibrate why are you here it's pretty standard questions but then talk to me about injury history talk to me about exercise history talk to me about what sports you play or what if you don't play a sport what do you do on the weekend if you don't do very much yeah okay how can i help you um and then we do a very basic uh full body assessment in terms of range of motion And after that session, we kind of go, okay, well, these are what I've highlighted as inhibitions. These are areas that I think you already actually have great mobility, great range of motion in, and you already demonstrate great control and great strength. So this is how, and then from there, I kind of just build a program around that. So for example, if somebody comes in and they talk to me about a knee injury, then okay, fine, let's work on rehabbing the knee. But what about the rest of your body? Is your upper body quite strong already? Is it quite mobile already? Okay, let's work on a bit of strength in that regard and let's catch your knee up. Um, 
so uh, for the average client, that's how we operate. And then there are some clients with just more specific, yeah, it's more specific, not even issues, but just uh, needs. So if, like if a client comes in and they play netball and I want to be, I want to jump higher. Okay, cool. Let's jump higher. Yeah. Um, first, show me your jump. Like, <laughs> is your are the mechanics of your jump okay? And if they are okay, now let's work on trying to build that. Let's try and work on jumping higher. Um, so yeah, I mean, every every client's a little bit different, um, but kind of approaching the same mentality of yeah you have to earn you have to earn your right to pick up a weight um but yeah we just we're we very much all believe that yeah your body needs to move the way it was designed to move before we give you a weight to restrict motion or restrict movement um no i love that so yeah and i feel like a lot of people in hong kong automatically when they get injured it's like no no moving and it's like no that makes yeah the big one as well is pregnant women as well right like we've got a lot of pregnant women uh, a lot of female clients that come in um, who were quite active uh, pre-pregnancy and then they got pregnant and kind of panicked and went not panicked because they were pregnant but panicked in terms of oh what do I do for activity yeah. and I'll just stop and then they come in when their second trimester midway through their second trimester and go okay I'm having a baby in 19 weeks and I've just realized that I haven't done anything for 20 weeks and now I don't know what to do yeah. um, and so really trying to really trying to get the message out that I mean I trained throughout pregnancy and yes okay maybe I was in a better starting position than some other people are but that doesn't mean that you can't start Um, so we have people that come in and kind of hesitate like oh I'm only x weeks and I haven't even told people because I'm only like three or four weeks but I mean you wouldn't really know that early but I'm only four or five (laughs) weeks for six weeks um uh I don't know like am I allowed to train and when we say yes of course their response is oh isn't it dangerous or whatever and yeah okay maybe there's some precautions that we need to take through different stages of pregnancy but for the most part um I think I trained right up until I probably I, yeah I mean I had a slightly different delivery but I mean I trained the day before Noah was born yeah. um and yeah trained pretty soon I mean I waited the six weeks eight weeks afterwards but yeah. then went back to it I feel like a lot of the um, guidelines fail uh pregnant women because they do I mean a lot of them are so outdated or they're not specific they're enough. not specific they're not out- yeah very outdated not specific uh like if we talk about, okay, I think it's second or third trimester, you would obviously know better than me, where it's like no supine exercises. It's like, okay, yeah. for how long? Yeah. I don't know. Just don't just do don't, it. Just don't so do it So is that all. a set of a bench press? Like a 30 second exercise will be okay? Or is it, yeah. no, so don't do it. Don't exercise at all. Don't, <laughs> do this, don't do this at all. No this, no that. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I think pr- whilst you're pregnant, I think a lot of women, I mean, in terms of support, you get a lot of support, obviously, mm. when you're pregnant because you are carrying a life uh what really shocked me was postnatally i remember thinking okay no it's going in for like a i mean she was born with a bit of pneumonia so she was a bit of an abnormality in that we had probably more doctor's appointments for her postnatally than or post like after her birth than maybe an old baby would i don't know um but i remember thinking like I've just had, like, a human has just exited me, and you don't even want to see me until six weeks later? Like, and at the six-week checkup, you want to talk to me about birth control. Like, can we have... Are you serious? Oh, yeah, that was the six-week checkup. The six-week checkup is essentially, what birth control are you on? It's like, hello, I've just had a baby. Can we talk about the million other things that are happening with my body? Don't tell me. Like, don't ask me about my birth control. Like that's not that's not where my mind is going. I'm like I've just, just in shock right now. My like, mind is not at oh okay, what are we doing about a second one or like a, another like six one? Six weeks later. Like six weeks later. Like, like 
you you my uh, like like I'm what did you maybe, say in that maybe, situation I, mean, I, I was like i just looked at him like probably deadpan like a yeah. little bit confused like i thought we were here to like assess me like <laughs> he's just like what is your birth control and i was like what and he was like what is it like do you like do you are you on the pill or are you on and i was like no <laughs> i've just like i was just very confused i was like i've just like yeah. i've just had a baby like i'm not thinking about another one like yeah. I've, I've just like literally she's six weeks old like i've got peanut butter in my pantry that's i don't been even know what to say to that. um yeah and then that's it right you get a six week checkup and that's it cool and i'm Come letting on. currently uh so i'm now eight almost nine months um i mean i took it a step further than most women like i don't know any many other people in hong kong but i went to see a women's health physio uh when i was about third i don't even know maybe probably about 30 weeks pregnant i went to see a women's health physio to get a pelvic floor assessment uh and then at the six week checkup uh the six week mark i went back to see the women's physio to get another pelvic floor assessment um for her to essentially tell me um your pelvic floor is not great which is very much expected so she was like obviously it's not great that's okay it's not going to be good for anyone here what is what you should do to help gain your pelvic floor strength back and i was like okay sweet she said what are you doing on terms of on a cardio front and i was like oh no i'm not interested in doing any running for another like until like four or five months she said okay to be honest the longer you can put it off the better wait at least three months four months like don't even think about that there's there's a lot more research coming out actually out of australia um with regards to return to running too soon um mm. and uh you might be strong enough at the time but just that weight into your pelvic floor is actually causing quite a bit of prolapse later on okay. in life so wow. not immediately but 20 30 years down the line um mm. they're seeing people that return to running sooner are experiencing higher rates of prolapse so essentially they're just saying look put it off for as long as you can ideally a year to which i said no way i'm not i can't wait a year yeah. to start running again she said okay it has to be at least three three months so I waited about five, um, maybe four or five, and then I went to see her again to get cleared to run. So we did another pelvic yeah. pelvic floor assessment, and she said, actually, you've improved a lot from six weeks. You're still not back to what you were pre-pregnancy. And she said, but take a step back. It's only been four months. Yeah. So, of course, it's not as strong. She said, yes, you can, you can get away with a bit of running and a bit of jumping. So I was like, okay, cool. So I did that. And then within a month or so, I just remember thinking, oh, something doesn't feel right. Like, it just doesn't feel right. Um, and I waited and I waited and I stopped running and I stopped doing, like, I stopped doing lower body exercise. Um, and then I noticed if I walked excessively, um, so I'm talking like 15, 20,000 steps. If I did that the next day, my pelvis just didn't feel, I just felt like pressure in through my pelvis. Yeah. So I had to go in for a six-month postnatal checkup anyways. So I went in and I mentioned it to my OB. And I will say I absolutely adored my OB. I found him very calming. He was actually a hysterical human. Um, he didn't really present as such, but he was a lovely man. Very funny, um, which I desperately needed in the depths of, <laughs> I, in the depths of labor. You needed that funny, re- like calming, reassuring voice. Um, so when I told him, I said, oh, he's, he's, he, he did a bunch of other checkups and he was like, hey, okay, everything's fine. Um, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yeah, actually, this is the problem. Like I'm feeling a bit of pressure into my pelvis if I walk too much the day before. So he then said, oh, are you still breastfeeding? To which I said, yes. And he said, okay, so your estrogen levels are a little bit low. 
collagen is trying to regrow and reconnect in your pelvis in your pelvic floor and into your pelvis if your estrogen levels are low the collagen levels not gonna be able to do that blah, blah, blah. so basically we need like your estrogen levels need to be higher and he said that's either going to be achieved when you stop breastfeeding so i.e wait it out or um i'll put you on the pill and i was like no no i have a bad history with yeah. I, I tried the pill before i have a bad history with it so i was like no I explained the history I had with it, and he said, oh, okay, well, then, no, we're not going to put you on it. Um, and then his response was essentially, okay, just wait it out. And I remember thinking, no. So I said, can I get a referral to a physio? And he was like, sorry? And I said, can I get a referral to a women's health physio? So he referred me to a women's health physio, who will I'm not hear the slander. So she, he referred me to a women's health physio. I went to go see that person, uh, and the person was not good. Uh, I'm not a physiotherapist. I'm a PT. I know my body. The person was wrong and dangerously wrong. Um, so I left the session. I went home and I was like, that was a complete waste of an hour. Like they were wrong. I know they were wrong. Um, and so I went to go see somebody else. I'm seeing a different women's health physio who was absolutely phenomenal um, and explained the problem to her. And she took one look at me and she said, okay, stand up. She said, are you wearing a sports bra? And I said, no, I'm wearing a normal bra. And she was like, okay, can you take your shirt off? And I was like, yes, I can. So she had me stand in front of the mirror and she was like, well, your right hip is so much higher than your left. And then she did an assessment on my uh hip adductors and she went okay you obviously have this is wrong and this is wrong and she did a glute strength like a glute media strength test failed miserably <laughs> failed it and she said okay this is what the problem is and i said okay so my ob told me that it was estrogen levels and she said never mind the ob's like this is structural and i said that's what i thought it felt structural it didn't feel hormonal it felt structural and then I finished that. So I finished the one session with her. I'm still seeing her now. And she is a wonder worker. But I remember thinking, like a miracle worker. And I remember thinking, the average person would not know, one, to ask that this was an issue. Two, wouldn't know that the first physio... Yeah, wouldn't, would, the average person wouldn't even know to ask for a physio referral. They would have just gone, oh, okay, I'll wait it out. Two, even if they'd asked, taken that extra step, they would have gone to see that first physio. The first physio didn't give me any homework, didn't ask to see me again. So essentially that person also just said, oh, okay, just wait it out. How confident are they in making money and then <laughs> as well? <laughs> I, so I was like, I have gone, I've taken so many steps that people wouldn't normally take. Yeah. And I was furious because I was like, if, if, like, can you imagine going to, like, like, I've just had a child and people are just kind of like, oh, just wait it out. It'll be okay at some point. Yeah. Like, but what about now? Yeah. And like, it was like, it is, un I'm experiencing discomfort now. Yeah. And I remember like at, at that point, I mean, social media can be a little bit, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a dark and dangerous place. I'm not an advocate for it. I am a big consumer of it and not an advocate for it. But it was on these like a whole bunch of like women empowerment pages came from my website, on my Instagram. And I was like, yes, feeling empowered. And then I was like, you know what? If men were the ones that were pregnant, this wouldn't be an issue. If it was a male that had to carry a child, we wouldn't be experiencing this. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been seen six weeks later. I would have been seen sooner. They would have, there would have been a mental health check. There would have been a full body assessment. There would have been blood work. There would have been this, there would have been that. If I said I was uncomfortable, I would have been given this referral, that referral. Yes, let's examine this further instead it was left up to me to have the confidence to know myself to do something 
I'm going to interrupt you right there because I literally just wrote down how do you have the confidence to disagree with your health professional but also what would you say to other women who are in that situation because like you said people if you wouldn't do it and I was just I was so angry yeah and I was like how is this like how is this okay and like I don't know what it's like to be pregnant in other countries so maybe it is different I don't imagine it's that different but maybe it is maybe in more forward-thinking countries maybe the health providers are a little bit better I don't know we hope (laughs) um but I just remember, like, I want, I'm a very stubborn person, which is how I got the confidence. <laughs> My kind of person. <laughs> I'm a very stubborn person. So when the OB event, essentially the OB said, wait. And I was like, no. <laughs> no, I'm not waiting for it to maybe be better in six months. Like, I'm not dealing it's with not this for enough. six months. That's not, it's not good enough. Um, so I just went and I was like, nope, going to do it. And I'm going to demand, I'm going to demand better. And I'm I'm very I'm glad I, I'm glad I did. Absolutely. Um, What's your advice to women who obviously wouldn't have your background in anatomy, physiology, in yourself, knowing your own body? What would you say to them if they're in a situation and they've just got something? They're like, eh, I don't I know. I would say, man, if if something doesn't feel right, and and if you've just had a child and something doesn't feel right, even if you haven't just had a child, if something doesn't feel right with your body, go seek help. And if you're not, I mean, if if the response you get from that health provider or the health provider doesn't make doesn't instill confidence in you and doesn't make you go oh yes okay yeah no that makes total sense if that's not the response that that if that's not the first response that you get in your mind i would like you you got to push further because we deserve better yeah. like you just got to keep pushing and i think especially since having a child like we like i'm demanding better of from myself so maybe a few months ago, a few years ago, I would have been a little bit more like, no, okay, yeah, maybe I'll be, maybe I will just wait and see what happens. Like, and I'll just keep doing me. And then if something doesn't get better, then yeah, I'll put it in my calendar and I'll make a note too. Maybe I'll go see someone about it. Yeah. But I think now, especially, I think, especially cause I've had a daughter as well. And that's like, this is a female and I come from a long line of like my, the females in my family are very strong, very independent, very powerful women, women. And I've always admired and really respected and I mean very much my idols very much people I look up to um and I've just kind of gone okay I mean I'm I know I'm not somebody that's people aren't going to push me around I know that I'm confident in myself that I wouldn't get pushed around but I've always I've also just kind of been like a, okay like I'm a pretty chill okay yeah. sure what whatever um and then no it just wasn't a good enough answer it wasn't a good enough response and the first thing when my OB was like oh I think it's an estrogen level in my mind I was like Don't no think so. because I know what I know how my body reacts to hormones. Like I know, I know that, and that's not. This is not that. Um, even though, I mean, I don't understand the. We don't understand the medicine of what needs to happen in order to rebuild my pelvic floor uh, on a biochemical level. But that doesn't feel like that's a good enough answer. Um, it felt a little bit regurgitated. It felt a little bit, almost like I'll deal with it later. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'll say something that I think will make you mad and I have to fact check this so I will (laughs) correct myself in the bio of the podcast if I'm wrong but I was reminded of this the other day but most medicine is not tested on women during clinical trials and stuff because their hormones are too hard to control it's too much oh wonderful that's so so great a that's bunch so of great. stuff we just get. Yeah I mean this actually this actually leads me that's actually quite a good segue into um uh like the return of the postnatal period yeah, is definitely. a big thing that people talk about. Like, oh, when did you get your period back? When did you get your period back? When did you get your period back? <laughs> and a lot of people are like, oh, I'm terrified. Or like, because it's supposed to, apparently, 
I, mean, I have not in case it's <laughs> I haven't had it back yet. But some people said it's much more painful. Um, it's a lot more uncomfortable. Also, it's been so long, and you're like, how do I deal with this again? <laughs> to remember. Um, and recently, um, one of the additions to this studio, one of like in terms of staff, so the actually quite cool. Uh, the the male trainer at the studio is actually uh, very well versed in how hormone cycling in women affects their ability to train. Mm. Um, so I we were talking about it in the studio, um, and then something came up. I again, it's going to be something in my Instagram or something came <laughs> up about the return of the postnatal period, um, and I remember thinking, like for the first time, I was like, I want to feel empowered in this, like, and I want to feel ready, and like, how do I do this? Like, how do I do this? So I started reading a bunch of literature on, um, yeah, essentially hormone cycling and using your body, like using your own hormones to its fullest potential in order to live your best life. So that's not only in terms of making, if you have a, if you have like a dustbound job, like how to make decisions better on a month by month basis, but from my environment in a PT, like what type of training should you do based on what menstrual, where you are in your menstrual cycle, like what when is a good idea for me to do a one rep max test? When is a good idea for me to transition into more endurance-based training? Mm. When can I do hit-based training and not injure myself? Like, how do I use more my hormones to make myself stronger? Um, and I, again, in, cycled like into the spiral, into this like, like pit of anger. Of <laughs> how, how are we not taught this? Like, how is it that I, a 29-year-old female, have to go out of my way to learn about my body? Like, that is not okay. Because, again, if it was a male that had to do this, this would have been something that everybody at school learns about. So how is it that, like, I have to learn about this on my own? Like, that's not, that's not okay. I've had to go out and I've had to like actually in my spare time learn about what is happening to my body. Like on like you're just kind of taught at school like oh this is the basic level of this is what happens in your menstrual cycle and then essentially this is how you deal with it. Not this is how you can use it to make yourself stronger. And again I think it's because I've had a daughter. I was like, this is not, this is not good enough. Yeah. Why? 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 Why has nobody sat me down? Not even just me. Why has nobody sat the world down to say, okay, this is what happens. This is what goes through the female body. Like, this is what happens every day of every month because I guarantee if a male was the one that had to go through it we would all be very aware there would be like be so much more accessible to knowledge day 28 everybody would know exactly it would be something you can proudly like it would be an Instagram sticker that you could add to your bloody story of like bloody story oh yeah look at that day 28 day 2 like no of course it's not because we're just told to just deal with it and oh yeah it's kind of a crappy thing that needs to happen but hey you know it's actually something that's quite beautiful because at some point you're going to bring a life into this world so deal with it but it's for a good reason no not good enough not no, good I'm right there with you. Not I'm actually, enough. I will send you this article afterwards that came out this year. I think I've referenced it in every podcast because I, it, like, <laughs> it like blew my mind. Um, it's this paper that came out and it was talking about ACL injuries and how it, we're always told mm. women, there's so many reasons why, oh, it's mm-hmm. your hormones or it's, have you, like the QL angle yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, QL angles. There are papers in 2000, in like 1999 that have come out being like, oh, well, when you normalize the QL angle for height, it's the same between men and women. 
I did like I've done courses last what? year where I'm still being taught that the QL angle is a risk factor for female populations. When you normalize it to height, it's not that it's different not that to men. Different. It's the same thing. Okay. So this article is basically like if you keep telling women that their bodies are biologically dangerous yeah. and it's dangerous for them to partake in sport, it's scary because they've got then yeah. they're going to internalize that. I'm not going to gym as hard. So I'm, I'm going to end this. up with yeah. more injuries because I'm not taking it more seriously because I'm told that it's dangerous. Yeah. And it's not good enough. No, it's absolute garbage. It's absolute garbage. No. And I think, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't even know. I don't even know. I feel like this I could think be we like have a, a moment of silence for like rage. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the microphone off for a second while I scream. He's going to swear. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you want to do a full 180? Yeah, let's. Let's talk about it. Is it Solerico? Solerico. Tell yeah. me about it. Okay, cool. Um, so again, in case you haven't told, I guess you could notice I'm a very ranty person. <laughs> I get into like, I get into a mindset where I'm just like, the world is not good enough. It's we're not doing good enough, and I'm. Uh, so I got got into one of those like, the world is not good enough mind, mindsets. I want a very ranty. Um, this is probably about five years ago now, uh, when my husband and I were living in London. Um, and I'd just come off of the back of, um, my sister and I went traveling for about 13, 14 months together. Um, I took a, I took a year off after uni. She took a year off between secondary and uni. Uh, and we just went traveling together all over the place. And, um, I have always found nature to be very calming. Um, growing up in Hong Kong, it's kind of oxymoronic people don't really see Hong Kong as a place <laughs> where nature would be, but I grew up in the South side of Hong Kong, right? So I grew up on beaches. I grew up hiking. I grew up in the ocean, uh, and then I went back to Canada. I grew up in the mountains in Canada, and I grew up trail biking, hiking, camping, backpacking, skiing, boarding, like all of that. So I grew up surrounded by nature. I've always found it very empowering and very, uh, very calming. Um, and then traveling all over the world, seeing all sorts of diff- different like natural wonders of the world, um, and seeing human history evolve as a result of the natural his- natural world. Um, yeah, I just went on a rant in London about like why isn't anyone doing anything about climate change? Like, well, we've been taught at school from the age of, like, I don't know, five or six. Like, however young you are. Climate change is coming. Global warming is coming. We need to do this, and we need to do that. And it's like, I'm sorry, I'm 29 years old. I've been told that since I was, like, six or seven. Like, what what, what have we done? Like, it's been 20-something years. What have we done? And the answer is nothing. Um, so we, I went on one of these rant, <laughs> went on a rant about uh it, it evolved it, it exploded into like you know what millennials are the worst we are the worst because we're so good at complaining we're so good at complaining look at the economy my parents left me look at the world their parents left us like look at this look at this why isn't anyone doing anything for me why isn't anyone doing this like why should i be the one to do it and essentially it went on this long run <laughs> and then like a few nights later uh my husband was like so why don't we <laughs> So I was like, what? He was like, so why don't we? Like, I was thinking about it. Why don't we do something? And then so I went, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> Maybe we should. Um, and we were out for a sushi. I remember very distinctly. We were out for a sushi dinner in London. We were celebrating an anniversary. Went back home. And the two of us just like pistols firing and just started writing down different ideas of he'd already because he'd been thinking about it for a few days, he's a very good silent thinker. So he thinks about things and doesn't tell anyone that he's thinking about these things. And then three days later, it'll be like, what if we did this? And it's um, amazing. <laughs> and it's like, oh, cool. Let's 
scale it back a little bit and let's like focus this a little bit and mm-hmm. okay i don't think that works but that does and let's so the two of us sat down and we just over the span of i don't even know how long kind of went yeah okay let's do something and then our genius uh by the end of the week we'd come up with uh, so he'd come up with the name i came up with the logo um and then we had it narrowed down to the very broad we should do renewable energy <laughs> and that was it um and then at the time we already knew that we were moving back to Hong Kong, so we went, you know what, let's wait. We'll come back and we'll, we'll do something in Hong Kong. Uh, one of our very good childhood friends was working for Ecozine, uh, which is a uh, very aptly named ecological magazine in <laughs> Hong Kong. So it does a lot of green. I don't even know if it's still in publication, but it does a lot. Of, it was in the green space in Hong Kong. Um, and uh, so we asked him and he was like, hey, we have this idea to do renewable energy on a charitable level would you be interested in helping us? And he was like, yeah, cool. Sounds great. Let's do it. So three of us sat down over the course of not very long, actually, probably about three weeks or so. Um, and broadly came up with this idea again, didn't really narrow it down much more broadly came up with an idea to do renewable energy in Nepal. Um, a lot of people went, that's a bit of a rogue decision, Nepal. And we said, yes. Uh, but it just so happened that we started when you've got an idea, you just start talking to people about it, right? Like, Hey, I think I'm going to do this. What do you think about it? Or, Hey, I think I'm gonna do that. And we basically talked to anybody that would listen. Um, we spoke to one person who told us not to bother. That's a different story. Um, and uh, essentially enough people, kind of new people that were in the renewable space, but in Nepal. Um, so we then started talking and we were like, okay, actually we did a bit of research um, and Nepal is actually a very viable place to do a bunch of different renewable energies. Um, and at the time, uh, the Nepalese government was participating in um, a practice called load shedding which essentially meant that the national grid was being funneled into Kathmandu and anybody else that was not living in Kathmandu was paying for electricity that they weren't receiving because at certain times of day, for hours at a time, all the energy would be shifted from nationwide just to Kathmandu to basically promote, like, pump, make sure the businesses are thriving, make sure hospitals are thriving. So rightly so for hospitals, but make sure the business center of Nepal is thriving. Um, so funneled electricity there, which kind of left all of the other cities that are not Kathmandu to their own devices. So a lot of them naturally change or naturally turn towards renewables as an alternative energy source. Um, so although Nepal was kind of like a road decision, at least we knew that renewables was already being consumed in Nepal and it wasn't, and it was sustainable. And it was, it wasn't that far flung a concept where we would have to start from ground zero and that it was, there was already local appetite. Um, so I sent an email to, um, one of two solar providers in Nepal um, somewhat bended the truth to say that we had projects in Nepal and were they interested in being a solar provider. Um, and one of them got back to me to say, actually, yeah, this is a cool time that you've come, like interesting timing, because we're actually looking at opening up like a social entrepreneurship arm of what we're, of our business. Um, and this is kind of what we're thinking about doing. So they were at the time just initially concepting the idea of switching people off of uh, diesel powered water pumps for irrigation you know, for cash crop farmers, um, switching the diesel component into a solar power component because they're a solar company. So I was like, oh, actually, that sounds super interesting. I'd love to hear more. So I spoke to their business, um, spoke to the business developer, um, spoke to the biz ops guy. And between myself, uh, Jack, and the partners that we now have in Nepal, we and obviously my other co-founder, Paul, um, we came up with this project, um, which is kind of, I guess, what we what you call our flagship project. And we are working with farmers out in the far west of Nepal, um, 
removing the diesel powered component of their water pumps into solar power um, and the project actually snowballed into so much more than we could have anticipated because in our minds we were just doing the renewable energy aspect right we were cutting out the diesel replacing it with solar so we then did a bit of i'm a big i'm a bit of a numbers person so we did a bit of like a number crunch i was like okay so each pump is half a ton of carbon a month if you use a diesel pump obviously there's no carbon if you use solar so i was like oh that's quite cool so for every pump that's six tons of carbon a year um and we did factor in for anyone that's going to call it out we did factor in uh the fact that we were in nepal we did we did make for all those considerations uh, so it's about six tons of carbon a year if a f if a pump was being used 12 months a year now what we then found out in doing this project was um just because of the location of where we're working in nepal um the average farmer only actually has a pump one or two months a year. The rest of the year, they don't have the pump, not because they don't want it, but because there's a lack of diesel powered pumps. So one pump has to be shared across many communities. Um, so what we're essentially doing now is we are giving them access to water 12 months a year. Now, the flip side to that was in the past, they've only they've paid for a diesel pump one or two months a year. So they got to pay to loan the pump. You then have to pay for diesel. You have to pay for maintenance. Um, there are a lot of problems in that in that aspect alone. In that the diesel comes in from India for political reasons. Every now and then that border is closed. No diesel in, which means that sometimes farmers are paying for a month of pump usage, but can't actually power the pump because they don't have diesel, or they get a pump that's broken. They don't they might have diesel they might have the pump but the pump's broken so it's out of commission for two weeks they got to pay for the maintenance and now i've sunk all these costs and i can actually use the pump for two weeks and then off it goes for another six or seven months um so we're giving them yeah so we've kind of we've we're now giving them access to that pump 12 months a year um now what we were very careful with doing was uh not gifting what is essentially very expensive technology to very bluntly farmers that don't have much um, and I said, there's a big fear of, I'm not a huge fan of large charities because they come in with sweeping gestures and is that actually beneficial on an individual level? So I said, what I don't want to find is I don't want to find we've financed these pumps and then go back six weeks later to find the farmers stripped it, sold it for parts and made the money by selling copper wiring or selling the panel to somebody else and then goes back to continue using diesel. So I said, we need to find a way to make them financially invested in the pump. So what we've done is through the solar company provider, um, we've partnered with various microfinance institutions. Um, so the MFIs come in with us to buy the pump. So we provide 30% of the cost of the pump as a grant. Um, the microfinance institution then loans 70% of the cost of the pump to the farmer, the farmer then repays that loan on a month by month basis. Mm -hmm. So I said, in theory, great, sounds cool. But farmers are used to only having two months of expenses a year, right? They're used to loaning a pump twice a year. Now we're asking them to pay a monthly loan repayment and that's something that they wouldn't have had to do in the past. So are we going to essentially try and come in and be the be the good guys and here's a solar pump in place of diesel but by the way now you've got to pay a bill every month versus maybe twice a year um so we then said okay well how we, i don't want to again i don't want to make the sleeping gesture and then find out a few months later that actually the farmers default on a bunch of payments the solar power pump is no longer it's been removed and now he's gone back to diesel and now he's <laughs> financially debted as well um so um 
what we've actually what we actually do is a lot of financial forecasting and a lot of just reassurance and making sure that actually the the monthly repayment is already much cheaper than a month of um diesel pump usage that's amazing um and not only that but because they now have access to water 12 months a year they're actually able to diversify crops whereas before you could only grow one or two crops a year because i only have a pump in january and in january we pump we plant I don't know mustard seeds. <laughs> I'm the wrong person. Uh, no idea, but uh, yeah, mustard seed is something that one of the ones they grow. I don't know whether they planted in January, um, <laughs> but essentially, yeah. So that's what I'm trying to say, right? They we're used to having a pump in at a certain month, and therefore this month we plant this because that's what the environment says that we plant. Yeah. Um, but now what they're able to do is they're able to farm 12 months a year, so they can make money 12 months a year. Uh, a lot of farmers are being quite entrepreneurial, um, and they are uh, flooding um, like big pools of water. Um, for fish and it's fish farming and I know there's a whole host of issues with fish farming um, but it's an example of how they're being entrepreneurial and they're saying well if I've got access to water let's make the most out of it so some farmers are actually finding that they're earning enough where they can buy more plots of land and they can hire people to work so when we first went down to Nepal uh, went to one of the first farms that we financed and um, the farmer was sitting under the solar panel as a bit of shade um, and I was like what is this guy doing and the guys that we were with said, oh, actually, he's quite smart. So he's hired the neighboring workers. He's, they've, given, they've given him, like, essentially, they've got this agreement with regards to the land. He's hired them to work on his farm. And he doesn't really do much work now because he has all of this. He has access to the water. He's entrepreneurial enough to diversify crops and to expand his farm. And now he's kind of like the local guy that hires people to work on the farm and he's able to pay people. Um, So you're like, oh, okay, actually, that's quite cool. My next question to them was, I like questions. My next question to them was, we're in the middle of nowhere in a landlocked country. How much fish are we used to consuming in this part of Nepal? Because you're all very well that you've got a fish farm, but if it's not part of the local cuisine, cuisine yeah. are we going to consume the fish um <laughs> and then actually we got hit with a bit of uh climate change fact and the the local said well we used to because there used to be rivers but there's no rivers now because there's less wow. water so yeah we used to consume fish but we don't anymore not because we don't want to but because there's just no the rivers are dry um so we've actually kind of i like to say that we've kind of attempted to reintroduce it into the cuisine <laughs> i don't know um but yeah, I mean, it was a very, the first time I went down to Nepal was in a very empowering experience. I mean, the first, for probably the next 18 months or so, every time I told this next story, I actually, it's a bit cheesy, but I did start to cry. Um, because I think it's no secret that we're very privileged. The fact that, I mean, in Hong Kong, very affluent, like we live in a very affluent part of Hong Kong. Um, we are very fortunate. Um, we inadvertently have contributed a lot to global warming most people in hong kong i would say um, most expats in hong kong right we do a lot of traveling um we consume a lot um so we have contributed our fair share of carbon into the atmosphere um and it's not until you go so it wasn't until we went to nepal and we spoke to the people um and i really wanted we really wanted to get a sense of is this actually going to change anyone's life or is this just a sweeping gesture that an international charity comes in and does this and yeah it looks great on paper is it actually enacting a change is it actually something that's going to impact people's lives so we spoke to a farmer and we said why like why did you put your hand up to receive technology that you don't really understand i mean we had to explain the process of 
uh, how the sun was going to bring water from underground above ground. Because um, essentially, like, if you don't learn it in school, like, we, we're kind of taught about solar power at school, right? But if you go to a farmer in the far west of Nepal, they're not going to school. They're not learning about solar power. To them, all they were told was this sun is going to bring water from underground above ground. And that was something we had to explain. So we asked him, we were like, why, why did you agree to participate in this? Um, and then he went on to tell a heartbreaking story. So we were there in June. It was 40 degrees. The ground was like a desert. It was so dry. It was so hot. Um, and I remember complaining and then having to stop myself and go like, okay, let's take a step back and take a chill pill. Like you're here for 48 hours. This is someone's, this is someone's life. Yeah. Um, and um, he said, you know, when I was growing up, um, my parents were farmers. And so when I was growing up, we were taught this is how you farm. And farming practices are passed down generation to generation and generation. Um, and he said, I don't understand why my farming doesn't work. He said, it's June. June is monsoon season, but the rains aren't here and I don't know why they're not here. And it wasn't until we had that translated back to us that I went, yeah, like this is life. Like these are, this is someone's life where... Like, they don't understand why their practices don't work anymore. Like, they've been taught by their parents, who were taught by their parents, who were taught by their parents, it's June, this is what you do in monsoon season to protect your crops. Then the rains leave, and they leave by middle of July. That means in July you do this to the land, and they are taught, and you're given this yearly cycle of this is how you farm to sustain your life. And then if you're lucky, this is how you farm to sell some of your product back to a local market so maybe you make a bit of cash. But that is being impacted across, I mean, it's not only an issue in Nepal, it's just that happens where you work, but that's, that's, an, that's an issue across Nepal now of the climate has changed so drastically within someone's lifetime that he doesn't understand, he doesn't understand why. So he just stood there and he was like, it's monsoon season, but the rains aren't coming. I mean, it hadn't rained in days. It was... I mean, as far as forecasts were, if you believe forecasts, I mean, it wasn't set to rain for days and days. And there was a guy who was just standing there, fundamentally just did not understand why. And he didn't, he couldn't, he was just like, I don't, I don't know why it doesn't work anymore. Um, and then, so it was after that trip, I went, you know what, even if we only do six pumps, even if we only do three pumps, that's six, that's three or six pumps that, that weren't previously there so and people always ask like what's the dream for Solerico and obviously when you start something the dream is that it goes as far as you can possibly take it and then that's not a very I'm a PT right that's not a tangible number like that's not an attainable goal you need to have a firm goal um but I mean I I really I don't really think we have one it's just I just want to know at the end of the day that I threw everything I had at it um and at the end of the day that's all that we ask of I mean realistically it's just Jack and I that do this here um, and we just want to know that we've thrown everything that we can and didn't just sit back and go, oh, someone else do it. Um, yeah. and so at least we know that we're trying and yeah, it's difficult, especially with the COVID times. It's difficult. Um, but it's good to know that we're, it's good to know that we made an effort and the, I mean, the project, the solar irrigation product is going actually quite well. Um, Nepal's had a pretty, pretty rough run with COVID. So, I mean, obviously it's more important health is more important than the work that we're doing so we're kind of giving them as much time as they need to to 
to get through the COVID times and there's no, like we have, we're not setting like firm deadlines for them uh, this last year. We're not setting them this year, um, but we've expanded our work in Nepal as well, which is pretty exciting. Um, again, shortly pre-COVID, um, we're actually working in the Himalayas in Nepal as well, and that's a plastic removal project. Um, so that's just decades and decades and decades of trekkers coming into Nepal and throwing out a plastic water bottle and throwing it into a bin that they thought was then, again, someone's going to deal with it. Um, and guess what? Nobody dealt with it. So now in this one national park we're working, a very small national park uh, right on the Tibetan border, um, five million water bottles in the mountains. Uh, and what do you do with it? Mm. Um, so we've partnered with a local charity to help remove the plastic um, so step one is removing the plastic. Step two will be actually processing that plastic and then upcycling it into um, either goods that we can donate to local schools um, or into usable goods that we can sell to backpackers and hopefully make um, make some local communities a bit of cash um, mm -hmm. from the garbage, um, which actually I think would be quite cool. Um, was, I was on a phone call with um, with the charity a few weeks ago and he was like, oh, we're thinking of maybe upcycling the plastic into like carabiners or trekkers to use so they can like attach things to their backpack. And he was like, how much do you think we could sell a carabiner for? And I was like, if you told me that I could buy a gift, like I could buy something from a local, like we're talking a very remote, very small village. And it's been made from the waste of years of other trekkers. It's like for a carabiner, you could charge 15 US dollars, 20 US dollars. Like I guarantee people would buy it. I would buy it. And I was like, you can make other things. I'll buy it. Like <laughs> that's, I think it's a cool concept because it looks quite interesting because it's, it's like shredded plastic or hard, hard plastic. So it's multicolored and it's like, it looks quite cool. It looks quite hipster. Yeah. It looks quite, uh, <laughs> yeah, it looks quite artsy without really meaning to be. Um, so that's a super exciting project. Um, again, COVID. Um, so that project's not really on hold, but just kind of building up a lot of ideas to essentially at some point host a fundraiser um, and uh, safely get uh, equipment out to um, out to a very remote village. I did the drive to that village already just before just before COVID hit. Actually, I was in Nepal in November two thousand nineteen, um, and I did the uh, I did the quote unquote three hour drive from Kathmandu. That was actually nine hours oh. of. It was actually hysterical. So it was a nine hour drive, about an eight or nine hour drive. And we were driving so slowly and the road was so bumpy that my phone thought I did like 60,000 steps. Because <laughs> like, every time we went up and down a bump, it counted a step on my phone. So I remember getting like the end of the trip, I didn't have my phone. Like we were in so, such a remote place. It's not like I, was, I wasn't using my phone or anything. But by the time we got back to Kathmandu, something came up on like the health app or something. And... It was like, oh, this week you're averaging like this X many more steps compared to last week. And I was like, how is that possible? Like, I've spent so much time in Nepal, like either being in a car driving to this village or driving back from it or on a plane flying out to go see projects and then flying back here. How have I amassed this many steps? So I went back to the week, like the week in summary kind of deal. And I checked on these different days that I was in this car and I was like, oh, we were driving so <laughs> slowly and the road was so bumpy that my phone thought I was walking. Um, Your phone was proud of you, though. Right? Phone was really proud of me, man. Like, I bet you Siri was, Siri was having a great day. She was like, yes, look at you and all your steps. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it is in the middle of nowhere. Um, beautiful, absolutely stunning, because it it's, a, it's a village in the Himalayas, so it's absolutely stunning. Um, it's mostly Tibetan refugees, um, 
so, I mean, just from a cultural aspect as well, not only are you in one of the most beautiful parts of the world, but just the warmth and the hospitality and just the cultural aspect of being in and amongst uh, in and amongst the Tibetans was was absolutely phenomenal and also heartbreaking because a lot of them still had family that were in Tibet and obviously can't get out and there's a whole issue there that we're not going to get into because we're in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty cool, I and mean, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, Slarikos let us do let us do stuff that yeah, let us do stuff that I never really thought I'd do. Right, I didn't study uh, ecology. I didn't study yeah. environmental science. I didn't study renewable energy. Uh, neither did my husband. Neither did our other co-founder. Um, but we just were stubborn enough and like passionate, passionate enough. enough to kind of go okay well we can't just keep sitting here and waiting for someone else to do something yeah. so why don't we do something and even if it's not very much something's better than nothing Absolutely. um so yeah i mean that's a little not a little plug that's quite a long <laughs> plug for Slurico. you mentioned um, the attainable or unattainable goals side of things like you just want it to go as far as you can do you have a way of defining success for Celerico um well we've always I mean in the past pre-covid it was set on like a fun it was like a fundraiser like a fundraising amount like if yeah. we raised in our first year we raised a hundred thousand so in our second nice. year we want to raise this much and our third year we want to raise this much and then we got yeah. slammed with covid and we went okay well maybe we scale everything back and then we actually got a huge grant um, just as COVID was starting to uh, manifest as potentially something that was going to be not so great. Um, we got a huge grant and the grant was very time sensitive. Yeah. Uh, luckily, we luckily the people who gave us the grant are very understanding and also do other work in Nepal and in the region. So they're very much aware of what the situation is in Nepal and are very much on board with, no, no, let's not do anything until it's safe. Did you um, have to apply for the grant or were you approached? Oh, yes. And yeah. it was like a two-year application process. Really? It was a lot of back and forth. At one point, I distinctly remember thinking, I don't even want it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want it. I can't read this grant. I cannot read this application again. Like, I can't read it again. I don't want the money. Um, uh, and then luckily, my husband's very good with... Uh, with words and with actually <laughs> actually putting together an application so it sounds like the dream was, team it was a great it was great it was yeah. great he basically i did the bones he filled everything in mm. um which was very time consuming <laughs> and then i reread and reread and reread we sent it here we sent it there we had it checked here we had it checked there we reread it was about a two-year process not not even an exaggeration yeah. um between first applying and actually receiving the money wow. um but yeah it was to do quite a fair few pumps so yeah. uh worth it in the end absolutely um, and yeah i mean hopefully once COVID is over yeah we can actually put the pumps in right now mm. we've only done six or eight yeah. um of that's a grants, crazy amount which, i love how you say like oh we've yeah. only done this you've so still I think done in it total, yeah i mean i think in total we've done uh i'm gonna say a number and then i'm gonna realize that it's wrong i'm gonna say 17 or 18 pumps i'll write it down we can write um, the correct one in later, write if the you correct one later. <laughs> i'll check i'll check my spreadsheet later um i want to say 17 or 18 um that is amazing and, and then yeah we've got the money years? uh no a little bit less so we okay. were officially a charity in um officially been a charity since december 2017 wow. again that was a uh <laughs> that <laughs> process and a half that was in a, we launched uh, a quote-unquote assault on uh, the uh, on um, the Inland Revenue Department in Hong Kong, we just basically we were told that to be a charity it would take at least twelve months to be approved from initial application. And I was like, no, not good enough. It's not going to take twelve months. It'll take us six. 
Um, and a bunch of people went, no, 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 no. It, like it, it takes 12 months because it's such, there are so many checks in Hong Kong yep. because Hong Kong is a money laundering haven. So, uh, it's it actually quite difficult to get approved as a charity in Hong Kong. So we had a law firm who luckily were helping us pro bono, um, who had experience in the field. Um, so we submitted an application, and then I set out. I sent uh, Paul and Jack. I, we sent. We came up with a timetable of every two weeks a different person was gonna. We I we called and called and called until we got the number of our case manager. And then every two weeks we called to ask if there was an update and ask whether we could provide any further documentation. And then eventually I think they just had enough in six. Obviously they actually did the proper checks and everything, but I think they yeah. basically went, okay, can we see whether or not we're going to approve or reject them sooner so they stop calling <laughs> us um, is what I like to think happened. Probably not at all what happened, but in my mind that's what happened. Um, so we got approved within six months. Um, and then we did our first fundraiser in um, July. Yeah, we did our first fundraiser in July, uh, just before achieving charitable status, actually. So I think we've done the 18 pumps in uh, almost, yeah, it's July now, so about four years. That's crazy. Um, so we And the last year has been rough. We haven't. No, last, we didn't do any, we hardly did anything last year. So I mean, it's we, technically three years. We, yeah, like, I think the partners were able to install, like, a few when restrictions were lifted. Essentially, Nepal's COVID restrictions were um, very, very strict. Yeah. Um, and also, the situation was just not good. So we, we told them very early on. I mean, they didn't need to hear it from us, but we wanted them to as well, just to say, like, don't. Like, don't mm. do the work if it's, one, illegal, or two, not yeah. safe. So, like, we can wait. Our The people that gave us the grant can wait, and they'll understand um, your life and your health is a priority. Um, so I think they were able to do six last year, um, just in between uh, COVID waves. Um, but uh, we've had we, just operational nightmare. Um, they've had containers of panels go missing in Singapore. Um, flights in and out of Kathmandu were basically halted, so they had to charter flights in, which is another huge operation. Uh, and it's just been a bit of a logistical nightmare. So yeah. we've learned a lot about logistics in the last year or so. <laughs> I have a whole new respect for people that are in that field because I, yeah, it's sounds a, like my worst it's nightmare. A, it's a minefield, man. It's yeah. just not, uh, yeah, not my cup of tea at all. So from hearing what you're saying, COVID obviously threw a spatter in the works with everything it did yeah. for everybody. For blah, blah, blah. But has there another time during Solerico that you felt like something failed or something didn't go right? Because it oh, sounds yeah. like you're going from success to success. Oh, no. But I want to um, bring it so down to a negative the space. The other <laughs> issue in Hong Kong is if you're a charity, that's great. And then good luck finding a bank that will give you a bank account. Yeah. Again, for money laundering reasons. Yeah. Um, so... It took a lot. <laughs> it took a lot. Uh, I lost my soul in 2018. Oh, like, no. it was just my, my whole life was seemingly revolved around. So essentially, we held a fundraiser July 2017, raised just over 100,000 Hong Kong at the fundraiser, which we were pretty happy about. Like it was the first fun time any of us had held the fundraiser. We had never done anything like this ever before. And we managed to get 100 people into a room, hosted a pretty hysterical pub quiz, uh, raised over 100,000 Hong Kong. Um, and at the time, we were not... At the time, we didn't have a bank account in Hong Kong because no bank was willing to give us a bank account because we were a charity and charities. We were a charity that hadn't existed for five years. Therefore, it's one of these like weird cycles, right? Like yeah. when you're trying to apply for a job and you need an experience for the job, but you can't get experience, can't experience the job unless yep. you get a job. And we had the same cycle <laughs> being a charity in Hong Kong. Mm. So... You need to be a charity in Hong Kong for five years in order to have a bank account, but you can't be a charity without a bank. It was just a weird yeah. cycle. Um, so we had just over 100,000 sitting in a PayPal account. 
and the PayPal account was a charitable PayPal account linked to Celerico. Like business registration number was there, um, all the necessary information. We were a legal entity. It wasn't like we were not a legal entity. We were a company limited by guarantee in Hong Kong. So we were an incorporated company in Hong Kong. Mm. We were a legal establishment. Um, PayPal then asked me to link it to a bank account, um, which we didn't actually necessarily have to do. So we didn't. Um, uh, also because we didn't have a bank account. Um, and then PayPal, essentially, it was a lot of back and forth between PayPal and PayPal. Like, we need all of your board of directors, uh, Hong Kong ID numbers, scan of passport, full name, whatever, whatever. We need this proof. We need articles of association. We need this. We need that. We need whatever, whatever. So I kept sending them information every six, probably every two weeks for about six months. I got a new pay- a new email from PayPal. My heart sank every single time. But a new email from PayPal, essentially asking for the same information, just in a different order. And it drove me up the wall. Until eventually, I got an email from PayPal saying, okay, we are not satisfied that you are a legal entity in Hong Kong. We are going to seize your funds. So they blocked access <laughs> to our account. Uh, we got the phone call right before we were going to go on a family holiday. And I essentially just threw my arms in the air. And I was like, I don't know what to do now. Like, are they legally allowed to hold my money? Like, we're talking, at the time we'd managed to deploy a little bit, but we're talking probably 80,000, 70,000 Hong Kong. And I was like, that was the first fundraiser we ever held. We were so proud of it. And for probably, I mean, I don't remember now, I've kind of like... Uh, post-traumatic it. stress like blocks yeah. out of my mind but for a set period of months um, we had no access to our PayPal account we had pumps that needed funding that we couldn't fund we had no bank account we had none of this and I was like I don't know how we're supposed to operate as a charity we can't raise funds because PayPal the only way we can raise funds is online uh, well realistically the only way because we're not going to receive like $100,000 in cash because I'm not going to do with that Um so oh, it was a lot of back and forth. And then eventually we pulled a very Hong Kong move where my husband um, used uh, family, well, we used like family connections or whatever to get introductions quite high up in a few banks. And then in very Hong Kong fashion, once the right person introduces you to the right person, all of a sudden everything happened. Uh, so we went from having no bank account to having a bank account, a standard chartered and a bank account, HSBC, within the span of about five months. Um, and uh, then Standard Chartered, essentially, the minimums that we had to keep in the bank accounts uh, for Standard Chartered was astronomical compared to HSBC. So we first moved all the PayPal money into Standard Chartered. Then we found out how much money Standard Chartered wanted us to maintain in the account. We went, how is that efficient on a charitable level if we have to maintain so much money in the bank account? Yeah. And then HSBC gave us accounts. We were like, sweet, going to do that instead. To which our accountants were like, whoa. <laughs> where where did we go how did we go from this amount of money here to this amount plus a minimum there to there like we need a better timeline and we need to sort of it's so weird like in the process of trying to prevent money laundering surely that would be a better like it's creating kind of like so ridiculous just money in different places it's Um, insane so that was that was a huge headache for at least six months um yeah for at least six months that was not fun um yeah that was not that was a pretty uh low time just because we had and that was right as we were gaining steam and gaining momentum as well we just had a charitable fund we just had a fundraiser we were all super excited and then we got slapped with okay by the way it was about i want to say it was about a year because i remember thinking 
around about July 2018, like we have had this money for a year and we've only been able to send X amount out because PayPal has blocked my access to it. So we got lawyers involved, we got this involved, we got that involved. Eventually, PayPal agreed to release the funds for 12 hours, provided that we could link it to a bank account that was in on it. Luckily, by that time, Standard Chartered had said, okay, fine, here it is. Um, but yeah, for somebody that does not, that chose to be a PT, partly also <laughs> because I didn't like sitting down at a desk staring at a computer screen, that um, was the worst six months. It was one of the worst. I mean, it was just, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. Um, I'm glad it's over. I'm glad we have the bank account. Uh, yes, once COVID is over, it'll be, uh, yeah, we're back to smooth sailing, hopefully. Um, and yeah, we actually, we have to get to Nepal, which sounds... Uh, which when is, is that supposed to happen? Well, we're supposed to go, for, as part of the grant that we received, we're supposed to go once a year. Um, okay. Obviously, they were very understanding that we could not go last year because yeah. this is just not physically possible. Um, so we're supposed to go once a year. I went, we went in 2017. Um, and then because we couldn't do anything in 2018 anyways, we didn't go in 2018. But then I went with one of our, vol- at the time we had a volunteer and I went with him in 2019. We were supposed to go in November 2020. Uh, November 2022 uh, 2020 um, obviously that didn't happen and then we were like oh, okay no at the time we were like okay we'll just go November 2021 that doesn't look like it's going to happen so um, we think at some point next year we will wow. at some point next year we not only have to go but we want to go yeah. it's a beautiful place to be it's a great place to be um, mm. and uh, yeah desperately want to go back um, but just have to wait until it's safe to do so so yeah in theory I think we're supposed to go at least once a year Mm-hmm. Um, just to, just to check in, just to yeah, just to check in with projects, but also to check in with partners um, and meet new people and see if there's anything else that in the in Nepal that can be done or should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting place to be. There's a lot of uh, a lot of really cool a lot of really cool people doing interesting things in Nepal. Um, You're one of them. Yeah, in theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know that we've been talking for ninety minutes so far? Really? Yeah. That's a long time. I've got a couple more questions for you. <laughs> If that's okay, yeah. I don't want to steal all of your afternoon. No, you're, <laughs> you're obviously very accomplished. So mm-hmm. what is some advice that you would wish you'd received when you were younger? Um, ironically, just to have a little bit more, like, to almost have the guts about you, just to, your wits about you, just to do what you want to do and not second guess and not kind of go, oh, but maybe I should like, I almost kind of wasted time in my life because I thought, oh, you know, I've always said I can't have a desk job. Maybe I should try it because mm. how am I like, how can I say I don't like a desk job? I've never done it. So I sent, I spent six months working a desk job and guess what? I hated it. <laughs> and I knew that yeah. <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to enjoy it, but I did it because I wasn't sure that I was sure that I was going to not enjoy I, I think I've just negated yeah, like myself didn't kind of times, have that trust in I didn't yourself. have the trust in myself to be like no no you know yourself you know you're not gonna you know you do not sit well yeah so why are you gonna go do a job that requires you to sit for 90 minutes uh, for nine hours <laughs> 90 minutes why are you gonna go sit Damn. for 90 minutes <laughs> this podcast yeah, we've hit the time limit, <laughs> hit the time limit. no more sitting um yeah so almost just have a little bit more faith um yeah. have a little bit more faith and there have been a few instances where I've where like I should have probably stood up for myself a little bit more and didn't um and yeah I wish yeah I wish somebody would just told me just believe in yourself a bit more yeah um 
I think that's something everybody needs to hear. Um, so yeah, I mean, nothing too, too specific, but I'll go with that. <laughs> I've got a really deep one to finish okay. up. Yeah. So at the beginning, you defined yourself or you introduced yourself as PT, CEO, mom, <laughs> partner. <laughs> if you strip all of those things back, yeah. I want you to brag about yourself for a minute because you've clearly got so much to be proud of. So go nuts. Tell me something that you're so proud of yourself about or tell me some great things about you. Um, unrelated to other titles. Unrelated to other Just titles. Just who you are. Um, I think... No, I'm... It's tough, isn't it's it? Tough. <laughs> it's tough. I remember when you sent me that list of questions that I might ask you. That was one of them. And I was like, oh, no, I hate that question. I don't know. <laughs> it's tough because, right, everybody, I think, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people, we, I, you identify yourself because of other things. Yeah, we so define when ourselves you, on relationships. When you and... have to then say, oh, this is what I am without that. Yeah. It's quite like. It's confronting. It's quite like confronting, but it's quite like it makes you feel a little bit like oh my gosh <laughs> it's quite like ooh, uh, it's quite bearing um, I don't know I mean I honestly don't really think I know uh, it's tough it's one of those things that you probably should know mm. and we should all probably spend a bit more time learning to identify yourselves yeah. without the other titles and do it on your own and who are you actually what about things um, like I'll start you off because okay. I think I've observed a bit today <laughs> You're confident. Yeah, so I would say, yeah, I'm definitely confident, probably at a fault sometimes. <laughs> Stubborn to a fault sometimes. Um, yeah, I think I have... I'm. Yeah, confidence is a big one. Um, but I've always... Like, I'm very... I'm like... Uh, I am young, but I definitely... I definitely act younger than I am. And I think... Like, in a good way, not yeah. in, like, a, I don't take myself seriously. In yeah. that, yeah, okay, there's probably a lot. If I was not a very nice person, yeah, you're right. I've done a lot. I've accomplished a lot. And I could probably be quite raggy about it and quite, like, I'm better, than, like, mightier than thou kind of attitude. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I've never really I've never really put that on myself just because yeah. I think I'm surrounded by so many people that have done phenomenal things. So I think putting myself in that environment and I think I'm proud of I'm proud of putting myself in that environment and I'm proud of surrounding myself with people who are phenomenal um yeah. and picky like we pick each other up like it's teammates it's colleagues it's family it's friends but we've all accomplished everybody I know like I can't think of any one of my friends and I guess that's kind of bragging in itself but I can't <laughs> think of any of my friends that haven't accomplished phenomenal things and haven't done crazy things with their lives that are admirable um, and I think I've managed, and I'm quite proud of being able to put myself in the situation where I've, I've built that community around me where we're not afraid. You're not afraid to shine. Yeah. And we're also not worried that, oh, if I admit this one thing, that all of a sudden I'm going to be the friend that did that thing. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those, oh, okay, yeah. You hide that's each other. Cool. Yeah, and... we've like, oh, I did this the other day. Like, this is what yeah. I'm doing. And like, oh, that's phenomenal, but this is what I'm doing. Like, whoa, that's so, so yeah. cool. Like, <laughs> this is what everybody's doing and we're all doing amazing things. And, mm. um, I think that's a tough community. I think it's a kind of a difficult community to find. Um, yeah. but I mean, I'm lucky that I'm lucky that I'm surrounded by people that don't really, I guess that don't really make me feel like I have to shrink or feel like I have to be like overly hyped myself yeah. because everybody's like, Oh no, but you do this cool thing. Yeah. But you do this cool thing. And it's just, that's, it's quite an uplifting environment to be in. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, I don't know. 
stuff question. That is a tough question. Tough I don't know question. how I'd answer that, by know. the way. Yeah, okay. I'm very thankful to be on this side of the bed. Maybe we should flip the microphones here, telling. I know. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I instantly do the same thing. I'm like, oh, cool. I've done. I've had this job. I'm yeah. doing this degree. I've done this. I've done because that. Because I also think... I think it's a gender thing too because I, I feel like if I too. ask my male friends they're like oh I'm good at this I'm good at this and I'm like I don't want to say that and I think bragging is the wrong word to use yeah. and like you said that cocky mightier than out that's yeah. even I feel kind of we shouldn't be we just want to be like we shouldn't be I should be able to say yeah. and be like yeah this is what I do yeah exactly and it doesn't and have then, to be a mightier than thou or yeah. cocky it's attitude just like it's a, just this yeah is this I is I what do. I do this yeah. is this is me and no big deal yeah yeah exactly <laughs> true well maybe you're the person that's gonna bring it out of everybody i hope so (laughs) 90 minute episodes episodes. here we go (laughs) thank you so much do you have any parting words of wisdom or Uh, parting bits of information any uh, parting plugs you want to get out no parting plugs i think i'm all plugged out (laughs) calibrating slurico was it that's what i came in to say who Uh, would be your dream guest on a podcast like this Ooh, or someone uh, that you think that i should go annoy next oh so it has to be like somebody in like an actual it could be like, or it could be your dream oh because i think i mean the olympics are around so mm. i think it would be kind of interesting to talk to some like one of the olympians like yeah. one of like the okay quite north american biased <laughs> but like somebody like shikari yeah would be at this point in her life would be phenomenal to speak mm. to done for a downer not on the olympic track team i'd Shocker. love to know your opinion on this we can talk Shocker. about that after that's another 90 minutes yeah <laughs> Um, so I think one of the Olympians, I think an Olympian would be so much, would be phenomenal to have. I mean, there's Olympians in Hong Kong that are, yeah. are that's pretty cool. There's some pretty cool Olympians in Hong Kong. I've met, I've met a few of the summers. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know who would be an interesting person to talk to in Hong Kong or talk to in general. Um, Shikari's a good Shikari's answer. a good one. Yeah. Well, it's just because it's just, it's pretty, just like, pretty epic. pretty epic. I'm also listening to a podcast at the moment and I think it'd be great to have, um, so during the uh, bubble season, the NBA last year, mm-hmm. one of the one of the more prolific female WNBA players opted out of the season to then enact change in terms of uh, racial equality. Wow, yeah. um, and she is now the co-owner of uh, one of the WNBA teams, and her name is Renee Montgomery. Ooh. And she does an she does an NBA podcast with a hysterical uh, Filipino guy, <laughs> um, and they are both like NBA nerds like I'm no, by no means an NBA nerd like I know I can name teams yeah um and people think I listen to this podcast because I'm like oh I know all the stats in the NBA <laughs> the opposite could not be more true um I follow the NBA not that closely but I follow it um but she is a phenomenal person to sp- like she's a phenomenal person to hear talk because she took a stand yeah in the most epic way like she was at the top of her game one of the best WNBA players she opted out she then bought like she now co-owns the team to enact change and i was like you know we need like i think young women need more role models like that where you know what i've had it i'm gonna do something about it and i'm gonna pull myself away and do something and that's what she's doing and she's she's being the voice that needs to be heard um and yeah it's a hysterical podcast as well but um it's very nba heavy so (laughs) they do try and mix in a little bit of politics into it as well which is what i find interesting because i consume a lot of nonfiction, like history politics stuff yeah um when i read but um yeah someone like her would be pretty interesting mm. just because i think 
she's a pretty like hyped up when you listen to the podcast like I find listening to the podcast and like <laughs> bouncing along as she's talking because yeah. the way she delivers and the way like her attitude and the whole energy yeah. that she brings to the podcast is huge um so I think someone like her would be pretty interesting That'd it's a pretty awesome. obscure one but um no it's a good yeah, one I think uh, I love I think someone like that if we're plugging cool. more like powerful women that's yeah 100 she's what uh she's about. definitely one of them awesome. she's definitely one of them um but yeah thanks very much for having me thank you so much fun. All right. All 90 minutes of it. <laughs> and that is the end of another episode of the Save Strength podcast. Thank you all for listening. There's a few Instagram handles that I want to plug for Kate. If you want to keep up with her studio that she works at, you can follow that on Instagram at Calibrate Studios. If you want to keep up with Kate's postnatal journey into fitness and wellness, you can follow that at Kate underscore Calibrate. Kate is C-A-I-T underscore Calibrate. And if you'd like to keep up with the Solerico Foundation and all the amazing work that they are doing, you can follow that as well on Instagram at Solerico underscore F-D-N. Solerico is S-O-L-E-R-I-C-O underscore F-D-N. Thank you guys again so much. And thank you again, Kate, for sharing your beautiful story with us. Have a great week, everybody.